This is where we train in Oklahoma City, the Cancer Center. We get referrals from Tulsa, from Idabel, from really all corners of the state, I would say. We have nothing to disclose besides that we're residents within the Radiation Oncology Department. And so the goal for today is to go over, you know, the types of radiation that we use to treat our patients, and then the modalities that we use to deliver that radiation, as well as the settings that we utilize radiation. And then also looking at emergent or urgent situations that you may encounter in the clinic or in the hospital as you are admitting these patients and how to contact us. And then also trying to you know, get an understanding of the history that goes into when you're talking to our patients, the exposures that they've had and some of the components that we're looking for when visiting with patients. And so oncology is a big discipline that has medical oncologists. I feel like those are the most popular oncologists. I would say everybody knows what a medical oncology does. But then we also have the surgical oncologist and then the radiation oncologist. So the three of us work together to come up with treatment plans for our patients. We usually do it in a multidisciplinary approach. Some cancers can be treated with chemotherapy alone, others with surgery alone, others with radiation alone. But most of the time, we're looking at at least two or three modalities of treatment to be able to effectively treat a patient. And so in our training, we get exposed to, you know, what causes cancer, how to work up a patient who may have cancer, how to prevent cancer from happening, as well as the role of ionizing radiation. And so that's really how we treat cancer. So we do spend quite a bit of time trying to understand radiation, but not only radiation, ionizing radiation that has the potential to cause cancer as well as treat cancer. And so we'll be talking about the types of treatments that we use, but we treat patients in the curative setting, definitive setting, where you know they're coming in with a malignancy. You all usually catch it in your clinics. You've done the workup and they see an oncologist. And so we're coming up with a curative plan or some patients come up and they've got metastatic disease and we're looking at palliation. So the palliative setting is also another setting that we treat these patients. And then we really focus on treating patients with radiation, not so much an age group, whereas medical oncologists, they focus on adults with cancer. And then you have your pediatric hemonc doctors, they're focusing on kids with cancer. And so we treat all ages, somewhat similar to family medicine. You know, you all are treating the whole spectrum. And so we treat all patients who have cancer and have an indication for radiation treatment. And then there's a very small group of benign conditions that we treat also besides cancer. So I get kind of the boring intro to do, um, but we'll, we'll get to it. Uh, but let's have this as relaxed as possible. So anytime you have a question, let's be interactive and just stop us and we'll talk and digress. And if we don't get through all the cases, we don't get through all of them. Um, when are we supposed to stop? 440, 445. I think we can do that. Yes. We won't keep you here. Double speed, just like in med school. <laughs> um, so radiation, uh, x-rays were discovered in 1896, and we were already using them for imaging and to treat superficial tumors by 1900. So after the discovery, we were like, hey, how can we use this to our benefit? We've come a long way from something that looked like this and caused a lot of side effects to something that looks like this and causes a lot less side effects. <laughs> um, and we'll talk a little bit more about the machine. 
Um, when a patient comes to us, we have different types of radiation we can choose from. Most common ones are the first three here, photons, oops, photons, electrons, and protons. And they all act a little bit differently as they interact with the patient and get to our target or the tumor. Um, and understanding how the radiation interacts with the patient, this uh, graphic here, can you see the curve? Kind of tells uh, everything that you need to know. So this is the dose delivered into the patient. This is on the uh, x-axis. Oh, you can't see that. This is the one that's there. It's the zoom. Uh, oh, this might be a, a better place to put it. Did it move? Oh, yeah. Uh, worse. I'll <laughs> <laughs> uh, just put it right there. Then you can at least see the, uh, the x-axis. We'll move it around as we go through. Um, but anyway, uh, so we'll, these are electrons right here, this, this dotted line. And what, what happens is when we use electrons is they deposit a lot of their energy very superficially. Uh, so this would be the patient's skin and this would be deeper into the patient. So they deposit almost all of their energy and stop very superficially. So we use that when we're treating skin cancer. So basal cells, squamous cells, we treat a lot of those. And uh, that's typically what we'll select. Uh, X-rays are a little bit different. Uh, the lower energies, they look kind of like electrons at superficial doses, but they have this tail. They'll still go through and have the ability to penetrate pretty deep within the patient. So they have a pretty high skin dose and kind of a higher exit dose. And then the higher energy X-rays, they have what we call the skin sparing effect. So that's, you know, superficially, they don't have a lot of energy. They kind of peak deeper within the patient. So we can take advantage of that to treat tumors that are a little... And this last curve here is the proton curve. Um, and uh, basically you have a low energy entrance dose and then it deposits all of its energy in a peak. Uh, and we can specify where that peak is based on the energy of the proton. And uh, so we want that peak to be basically within the tumor. And then there's no exit dose beyond that peak. So a little bit of the properties of the, the types of radiation that we use and we can take advantage of those unique properties when we're treating in different parts of the body to hopefully hit our target. Let's see. Um, and so there, we can choose our type of radiation. We can also choose the technique that we wanna use when we're delivering the radiation. So 3D conformal is kind of the simplest that you can get. So an urgent case that comes to us and we wanna get started that day or the next day. It's a plan that has you know, two, three, or four beam angles, but relatively simple to set up in QA and get treated. Most of what we do is IMRT, or the Intensity Modulated Radiation Therapy. These are really complex plans that take several days of, um, of work to get done. And they basically will have up to an infinite number of, of beam angles and uh, beam shapes. And so we can get a very, very formal dose to the area that we're trying to treat. Uh, more and more, we're using stereotactic techniques. Uh, so SBRT or SRS used. Uh, these are high doses of radiation. used more in a kind of radiosurgery type uh, manner to ablate the tumor in relatively shorter time periods. And in brachytherapy, you've probably had patients that get, you know, prostate seeds or they have a gynecologic cancer and they'll have a... Uh, a, um, an actual radiation source placed inside them for sometimes indefinitely, sometimes for a short period of time. 
Um, and so that's another aspect of how we will deliver the radiation as well. And then we have this, the setting. When do we want to put radiation into the mix, so to speak, in terms of chemotherapy and surgery and other, other ways to treat the cancer? So we use it neoadjuvantly, so before surgery to downsize or help clear the margins for the surgery. We can use it definitively where radiation is the backbone of the treatment. And then you have uh, you know, a chemo or a hormonal therapy to, to aid the radiation. We have adjuvant, so after a lumpectomy, after a brain tumor has been resected, we'll always come in with radiation after that, or almost always. Um, and then uh, in the case of lymphoma, after several cycles of chemotherapy, we can consolidate if there's certain areas that aren't responding to the chemotherapy. And then at the bottom is palliative, which Gabe alluded to, uh, is also a uh, large portion of what we do. And leads to the next slide. So approximately 40% of advanced cancer patients will get palliative radiation therapy. About 40% of what we do on a daily basis is palliative radiotherapy. So we're kind of palliative doctors as well as curative cancer doctors. And so we kind of have these two roles where we're trying to cure the cancer and ablate the tumor. They're usually longer, prolonged treatment times that take weeks, and the side effects are usually uh, greater for those patients. When we have a palliative case, like what we're going to talk to you about, some of our inpatient cases today will be palliative. We'll have our goal is symptom control or symptom prevention. And it's we're trying to do it as short as possible with the least amount of side effects as possible. So you kind of have to obviously there are patients that live kind of on the on the realm and right in the middle of those two. Those are the tough cases, and goals of care discussions are always very important. So what happens after you refer a patient to us? Maybe it's an inpatient that you're sending to us for an urgent issue, or a patient that you do screening in the clinic and they need to come to us. Um, after we see them, we'll do a, a consultation that's usually an hour and a half to two hours. There we'll talk about staging, you know, prognosis, our treatment plan, all of that. And every patient will get a CT scan. We use that CT scan to do all of that complex planning to get our radiation delivered to the target. And if it's an urgent case, we'll do it the same day. It, usually like a typical breast cancer patient or prostate cancer patient, they'll come back a week, week and a half later for that scan. And after they're scanned, it can take a few hours to come up with the plan or a few weeks, depending on the complexity of the plan or how urgent the case may be. And it goes through a dosimetrist, a medical physicist, and eventually us to make sure that the plan is exactly how we want it before we start treating. And then treatment can be as short as one day um, or as long as seven weeks. So it just kind of depends on the situation. All right. So. As you heard, you know, radiation, we're trying to find the location that we're going to treat, unlike chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is systemic. It goes in the vein. It goes throughout the body. And so always what we're telling our patients is, you know, we've got to make sure that we can deliver the radiation the same way with every day. If we're just doing one session, then we've got to deliver it the same way that one session. If we're doing 10, 15, 20, or even 35 in some cases, and we've got to make sure that we can deliver with the same accuracy every day. So reproducibility is very important. And we're looking at two to three millimeters max. And so this is one of the masks that we use for our patients. Usually if we're doing CNS treatments, we're able to immobilize the patients. And I'll show you on the linear accelerator where that would attach. But this is for a head and neck case. So we're able to immobilize the head along with the neck and then the shoulders. 
ensuring that the patients are not moving while on the treatment table. We always describe to the patients, you know, if you have, for example, a tumor in the right tonsillar area and we're aiming the beam of radiation in that location, if you move, then we're gonna hit something different. And so it's very important to mobilize patients and make sure that we can do the treatments the same way every time. So this is a linear accelerator. This is the couch where the patient is placed on, usually facing this way right here, facing the ceiling, and then this way. The mask will attach in this region here. And then this couch can also rotate on the floor. And so we're all about trying to find the perfect angle to deliver the radiation with the least amount of side effects. So for example, for a head and neck patient, you're looking at the tumor location as well as the parotids and then other critical structures near that tumor. And so depending on your setup, you know, you're gonna align your beams. And so the couch may have to be in a different angle. And all of that is planned ahead of time through a computer software. And we're able to program and tell the therapist how to position the patients. This is the gantry. And so this right here rotates in a 360 angle. And so we're able to, again, change the angle of the couch and then change the angle of the gantry so that we are delivering radiation to an area specifically. These are images devices that we can do on the day of the setup. So every time we put the patient on the couch, we've got to make sure that the patient is actually aligned with the treatment plan that was done during that CT simulation scan. And so this allows us to check the positioning for that day and deliver the treatment just like it was planned. And so this is right at the head of the gantry. These are multi-leaf collimators made out of tungsten. So these are very thick and we're able to shape the beam of radiation to the area of interest. So back in the day, 30 plus years ago, we didn't have this. And so we were delivering high dose of radiation to areas that we were just blocking, but the patients were ending up with a lot of toxicity. Whereas nowadays with MLCs, we're able to deliver a more conformal treatment where we're able to spare organs at risk. And so this is another device, we call it the Gamma Knife. We're able to do radio surgery with this. Again, immobilizing the patients here is critical because we've got cobalt sources that are all aiming at an isocenter, so an area that they all intersect. And then when we're programming the software and looking at the MRI, we're able to pinpoint the areas that we're gonna deliver the radiation to based on this machine, based on the patient, but we've got to make sure the patients are immobilized. So this is a titanium frame that we use. The screws don't go through the skull, but they add quite a bit of pressure to the patients. Neurosurgery will come in and help us with the placement of this frame. And then we attach this frame to the treatment table so that the patients are moving literally like one millimeter or less. So it's very precise. We're also able to deliver this treatment with the masks that I showed less painful for patients. We usually do that in one to five fractions, depending on what you're treating. And this is just an area that we're treating right here, as you can see. So very critical structures here in the brainstem, midbrain region. And so if you're off by a couple of millimeters, you can definitely cause damage to structures that you're not meaning to treat. And that's why it's very important to tell our patients, you know, as we explain to them the immobilizations that we're doing, just to keep them from getting into the treatment field. And so this is an example of a plan of a patient that presented to a gynecologist, was having a lot of heavy periods, got evaluated, ended up having a hysterectomy, but during the procedure, 
the patient was found to have cancer. And so the patient went through, had a hysterectomy, and then was treated with radiation after the fact. As you can see here, we're treating these lymph nodes in the pelvis, as well as the area where the uterus used to be. And so as we're doing the planning, we're looking for you know, the areas that we wanna treat, as well as the areas that we wanna protect. So the bladder is important, the rectum right here, and then the small bowel. And then we're looking at the dose volume histogram. So it's a graph that we use to see how much volume of an organ is receiving a certain dose. And we have several cutoff numbers that we go by to make sure that toxicity is well tolerated by patients. And so in Oklahoma City, we have two proton centers. Oftentimes patients will come in and say, hey, I saw these on TV. They're talking about protons, getting a better treatment for me. And so we, we have to tease out and explain the difference between protons and photons. If you had to guess, do you think this is a proton plan or a photon plan? How many hands for protons? This one right here. What about photons? Yes, so this is a photon plan. As you can see, this is our target right here. So the target itself is getting the adequate dose. You know, it's pretty red. It's at the top of the prescription dose that we have here. And so we're treating that adequately, but then you also see a lot of dose outside of the target. And so for a photon plan, we're having to align the beams in that isocenter, which is in this region that we're treating, so that we're minimizing the dose outside of the target. Whereas protons are heavy particles, and we're able to program the machine so that it delivers the majority of the dose right here with very little dose distal to your target. And so we still have some dose. You know, there's that area of uncertainty, but overall, very little dose beyond the target. And so this is especially important for kids. So a lot of the pediatric patients, we do try to do protons, but sometimes we can't pull off protons. Sometimes protons is not the, the answer for some patients. And we have to tease out and explain to them that it all depends on what we're trying to accomplish with the radiation. If you've got areas that are going to require radiation being covered from both sides, then you lose that unilateral advantage that you get with protons. But oftentimes we'll come up with two plans if a patient wants to at least see, just to discuss and show the patient, look, you know, protons, technically, you know, they have an advantage, but not in your case. And we're able to show that to them in clinic. And so just like antibiotics are prescribed in milligrams or milliliters, you know, we have a dose that we prescribe. We have a unit that we use and it's the gray. So the gray is the unit of absorbed dose per kilogram. And we'll also use centigrade. So as you're reviewing our charts, you will often see patient received 50 gray or 70 gray or 45 gray of radiation. All of that translates to DNA damage. So our ultimate goal is to cause DNA damage. So different chemotherapy agents will do different things to the cells, whether it's through receptors or within the DNA. Radiation works by ultimately causing DNA damage. So if there's one thing you can take away from this lecture is you know, DNA damage. Now it can happen either directly to the DNA molecule or indirectly through different radioactive species oxygen. And so, you know, overall, we're able to deliver treatments and we'll be covering this through the next sessions here, either in one fraction, five fractions, some cancers will require 35 or so, but we're able to deliver radiation effectively up in one fraction, depending on the dose that we use. So we'll be covering emergencies next. 
And so as you see these patients in the hospital, it's important to keep in mind that you're taking a focus history. This is an emergency situation. And our goal is to help you figure out who to call, when to call, and the workup steps. Okay, so a little bit of time to talk about some cases. We won't spend a whole lot of time on workup and what would you do next, but the goal would be to maybe have some, add some extra steps in your thinking process or a few extra things to your differential diagnosis when you're seeing oncology patients in the ED or in the clinic. So this first one is, uh, most of these are, are real stories that only the names and places have been changed, but a uh, 43-year-old guy, uh, ED with back pain, pelvic pain, 48-hour history of no urination. Uh, physical exam is pretty unrevealing, just has a tender lower abdomen. Um, you don't really elicit any pain. You don't really see on a good neuro exam any specific neurologic deficits. Um, so any ideas? You're, you have some oncologists talking to you today. So there's probably some things that you can think of. That could bladder, bladder cancer. Sure, bladder cancer. Prostate. Prostate cancer, good. What about non-oncologic things? Yeah, so some kind of bladder outlet obstruction, uh, right? Uh, a neurogenic bladder wouldn't probably present like this, but you do get a lot of urinary retention. Um, and Hello. yep, certainly. Um, I remember uh, intern year having a patient just about every time I was on an inpatient service that had a neurogenic bladder or something and was presenting with urosepsis, like just like about every week we would have something like that. Um, so uh, here's a little bit of his history, though, after you talk to him. He has a history of an oropharyngeal cancer that was treated five years ago. And then he actually had a met to his liver that was treated. And he's been healthy in the intervening two years. So no issues. He's a very active person. He looked healthier than, than me. And I, you know, that's not saying much, but um, he looked healthy. He rides his mountain bike all the time. Um, so any... Any next steps besides, you know, scanning his bladder and getting him some relief from a really, really full bladder? Yep, so if you're concerned about infection, obviously, any imaging that you would want to do? Sure, so we can do CT. I think this patient actually was started pretty much anyway that goes to the ER now gets a CT. Um, and he also got an MRI for him turned out to be really good because he had some metastatic lesions on his spine. So he had a T spine lesion and an L spine lesion. This is what it looked like. So, uh, so this kind of dark area here in the sacrum is uh, you know cancer replacing uh, some of the bone over here on the iliac you can see some of that discoloration there in the t-spine you can see this area here where there's disruption of the csf and uh, just some abnormal stuff there so he's his s1 lesion is probably the cause for his urinary retention and so if you're 
in the ED seeing this patient or you're about to admit him to your service uh, on the inpatient side, uh, what are some of the things that you're thinking about get accomplished for this patient? Okay. What if you don't have that available? Sure. So uh, tissue is always important. Tissue is the issue. I've heard some people say no meat, no treat. Uh, you know, there's all of these little, uh, you know, things you can say. Um, in this person, probably very likely that it's his, his squamous cell carcinoma, um, but you wouldn't be wrong to try to get some tissue. Um, typically, you know, a lot of people are going to jump to, let's get this person evaluated by neurosurgery. Um, as well. So those are all not wrong things to do. Um, the goal then oh, uh, is to talk about some tools that you can use as the, as the uh, primary care physician to evaluate the need for, you know, radiation or surgery. Um, and it's, it's pretty simple. So it's the NOMS framework is developed by Memorial Sloan Kettering. And so basically when you have a patient like this come in, you can think noms. Uh, I use this, I don't really like noms as a, as a mnemonic, but um, neurologic, oncologic, mechanical, and systemic. So first off neurologic, you can think of it in two ways. One is what is the extent of the epidural spinal cord compression? That's the ESCC up there. So is it a high grade or a low grade compression? And that's something that talking to your radiologist um, can, can get that answer. And then do they have a neuropathy? Is there a, a, an actual manifestation of that cord compression um, you know, that you're seeing? So for him, his urinary retention would be a myelopathy. Oncologic, so the, this is really a question of, is this a tumor that's radiosensitive or chemosensitive? Or is it something like a sarcoma or melanoma um, that's gonna act a little uh, you know, a little tougher in the face of chemotherapy or radiotherapy, where surgery might be uh, a quicker decompressive um, answer. Uh, the next is mechanical. This one kind of sits on its own. It's either stable or it's not. And we'll talk about how, how to determine that with the, the SINs score down there. And then systemic is not only what their uh, cancer is doing. So do they have nets everywhere else and they're going to live two months? Or is this the only site of disease and they're going to live another few years? Uh, so that can help you decide how aggressive or how conservative to be when you're, when you're deciding what to do for these patients. Also, do they have severe COPD or very poorly controlled diabetes? You know, there are lots of other comorbidities that can affect the patient's overall survival that need to be taken into account when deciding. And so for the mechanical, we can use the spinal instability score. Yeah. It's a six question thing. Sorry, guys. Um, it's basically six questions. So, for his T spine lesion, he gets a point. Angel non mechanical pain, he gets a point. Plastic, he gets no points. Uh, his alignment's normal. He has no collapse, but he has more than 50% involved. We don't see an axial, but you'll have to trust me on that. So, he gets a point. Um, and posterior lateral involvement, he has unilateral, uh, so he gets a point. So he's a four on this spinal instability score, so he's technically stable, okay? And so then this, this paper by uh, Sloan Kettering, after you've gone through those NOMS or NOMS, 
you can kind of come to a decision on what would be the most appropriate um, pathway for this patient. So he has actually low-grade spinal cord compression, but he has a myelopathy. He's likely squamous cell carcinoma, so that would be radiosensitive. He's stable per the SIN score. So radiation therapy would be um, the appropriate way forward for him. That's what we ended up doing for him. He was well known to us. We treated his head neck uh, cancer as well as his liver lesion. Um, but this is just a way to kind of think through. You may not end up in a place that has neurosurgery or has radiation or has neither or has one or the other. And it's just kind of being able to kind of work through some of these things on your own. I, I use this a lot when I'm talking to younger residents or even younger neurosurgery residents who are talking or uh, referring to me. Um, and so what we ended up doing, this is kind of an example of a plan. Uh, you can see in the T-spine, the green is our target, the red down here is our target in the sacrum, but we're minding the other organs, the lungs, esophagus, you know, heart, bladder, rectum. So we're able to come up with a plan that's not just going to totally cause a lot of side effects for him and hopefully um, give him some relief. And he responded quite well. So, some, about one in five of all cancer patients will develop a vertebral net at some point in their course. It's, the presentation is varied. It's where along the spine is this occurring, could be the manifestation of their neural findings. Um, it's, it's important if we don't know what the diagnosis is to get that biopsy uh, so we know how to, how to proceed. Um, and usually neurosurgery or radiation oncology is going to be who you're going to want to talk to to get something done. Um, in the meantime, though, starting dexamethasone, pretty high dose. Um, usually we're the ones that will taper it because they'll come to us. We'll start treating them and then we'll taper them off. But that helps with the edema uh, in the spinal cord. A lot of times you can have symptom resolution or some symptom improvement just by initiating the dexamethasone early in the ED or once they get to the floor. And that's our longest case. The rest usually go pretty fast. All right. All right, so you've got this 57-year-old woman who's coming to the ER. She's had a six-month history of cough and shortness of breath. Hasn't really had any hemoptysis, no chest pain. I mean, very mild whenever she's breathing. And so you see her in the ED. She's not really in any respiratory distress. She's talking to you okay. On your physical exam, you do notice some lymphadenopathy right here in the right supraclavicular region. And so imaging shows pretty bulky mediastinal disease, right hyaluronic disease, left hyaluronic disease, and then axillary lymph nodes. And so as you're walking through, working through this case, what comes to mind? Cancer, of course, but what types of cancers could manifest in this way? You can see breast cancer, advanced presentation lung cancer, a lymphoma could also present this way, like a mediastinal mass. And then sometimes we do see thymomas, it would be sort of uncommon, but definitely possibility here. And so this is a CT, we're going axial from top to bottom, as you can see right here, the lungs, this does not look normal. And then going down, definitely abnormal right here. 
You know, you've got this mass that's encasing, you know, everything in the mediastinum just about. You've got the blood vessels right there. You've got your airway, esophagus. Everything is pretty much getting compressed by this mass. And so, you know, for this patient, she had lung cancer. She was a new diagnosis of lung cancer. As you can see here, this is our target where, you know, and we'll talk about her presentation. We're trying to target the mediastinum as well as, you know, any lymphadenopathy within that region. So not just the mediastinum, but the hyaluronic region. This is a coronal view, as you can see right here in the right supraclavicular region, that lymphadenopathy that you saw on exam. We're also targeting that all the way into the mediastinum right here. You've got the lungs. And so the red line is the area that we're gonna deliver radiation to. She actually presented with superior vena cava syndrome. So this is one of those pathologies that we do see quite often. We don't always treat these patients, but they're always coming in the hospital. I feel like at least once a month we have a case. And so this is a photon plan. As you can see, there's dose coming from both sides. The red region is where we're delivering therapeutic radiation to. It's the dose that's gonna be effective. Everything else in the light blue and light green is in the periphery. So doing a cone down to just the area that we're interested in, we're able to deliver that. And again, a different view. As you can see here, as we're doing her plan, we've got to take the lungs into account as well as you know, the spinal cord right behind here. Her heart got a pretty hefty dose just because of the location of the tumor. And so SBC syndrome, these patients present usually with facial arm plethora, edema, distended neck veins. Sometimes they can't swallow. They may have trouble speaking. History and physical exam, these are the patients that depending on how they present, they may be going to step down or even the unit. If you think back to how radiation works, we're looking at DNA damage. So it's not going to work immediately. So getting, you know, palm involved sometimes doing an intraluminal stenting may help the fastest way. And then also looking at what type of cancer it is. So if we don't have a tissue diagnosis, then definitely completing that workup with a bronchoscopy and then sampling that area just so that we know what we're dealing with. Some cancers will respond better to systemic therapy up front. So lymphomas, small cell lung cancer, germ cell tumors will respond better and faster to chemotherapy. So usually you will start those patients. Medical oncology would start chemotherapy and then we come afterwards and also the radiation. If it's a non-small cell lung cancer, then we usually start with radiation for about three to four sessions. And then we do come up with a regimen that we can do chemo and radiation concurrently. And so it's important to involve those other doctors in this setting because if a patient is eligible for curative intent treatment, we wanna make sure that we're coming up with that plan instead of having just medical oncology come up with a plan or us coming up with a plan. It's important to look at the patient as a whole, finish the workup, see if we do have any chance of cure and deploying a curative intent plan instead of a palliation plan. Okay, so I think we're, we're basically running out of time. Started a little late, so we'll do one more, but we've got several options. So we can tailor it to what you think will be most applicable to you. So we have a bleeding pelvis case. We have intractable pain with bone mats. We have some outpatient cases for skin toxicity, radiation proctitis, radiation pneumonitis, or any of these ringing bells for things you might have encountered or want to learn more about. We can, sure. 
And these slides will be made available to you. So there's kind of a, a pearl slide for each case that uh, can kind of help direct you. Um, so this is a patient, we'll just look, uh, we don't have to go through the, the case, um, but she's finished radiation uh, for breast cancer. Um, when you're looking at this, at this, this patient might have some sort of skin reaction after she completes her radiation for two-ish, maybe a little longer weeks. It's not, wouldn't be uncommon for them to present to your outpatient clinic um, for another reason and ask you about what they can do for their skin. Um, this patient in particular, the, this is a whole breast field. You can see her, her lymph node dissection was retreating the axilla there. So this is a kind of a, a pretty, um, pretty drastic skin reaction. Um, but um, it's not that hard to treat. So this is an example of how to grade it. Uh, this is someone with darker skin. This is someone with lighter skin. This would be grade one. So grade one is faint erythema, maybe some dry itchiness. These two, I would classify as grade two. And this one might be grade three. It's kind of borderline. This might be a really bad grade two or a grade three reaction, but you see more of this moist exclamation. Um, but it can look pretty different depending on the, the, um, the skin tone. So it's important to, um, to keep an eye out. And then basically how you want to uh, treat these is dependent on the grade. But in all cases, advise loose clothing, good skin hygiene. So compared to not washing it and when, with a mild soap, mild, you know, lukewarm water every day, uh, patients who washed and kept the area clean obviously did better, less itching, earlier uh, healing times. And so it's important to encourage good skin hygiene, but a lot of patients, it's a little tender, you can imagine, it's probably not fun to wash. Um, and so sometimes patients won't do that. But these grade one and grade two, which is the most common uh, skin toxicity from radiation, um, aquaphor, that's basically what that means. <laughs> um, aqua, anything like aquaphor, uh, I don't get paid by them, um, but it's great. Uh, you put a layer, I always say, when you get up, when you go to bed, and at least one other time in between, um, it just puts a good uh, a good layer on there. Uh, low potency topical steroids can help. I rarely ever do that. Most of the time, if they're putting Aquaphor or another uh, moisturizer on there, they're not going to need a steroid to help with the itchiness. That kind of helps with the prurious as well. Um, if it's a grade two or grade three, or you see a lot of the moist desquamation, um, that's when you're thinking about some dressings. There are Again, a plethora to choose from, methyl X or meta honey, like there's just a ton. Uh, but that can help keep that area dry because once you have a grade two, you start worrying about co-infections. Uh, and so you worry about cellulitis and it can be quite, um, quite painful and quite ugly if they get a, a co-infection. You treat it just like you would a, a normal cellulitis though. So same coverage you would normally do. There's not any specific thing you need to take into account per se when you're uh, empirically covering them. Um, and then obviously if it's grade four, which I've never seen, uh, specialized wound care is gonna be necessary for that. So that's that case. Do you have questions? For that specifically, how long do you expect to tell the patient they would? Sure, so for, um, for a typical breast cancer patient, like I said, this, the skin's gonna turn over about every 10 to 14 days anyway. So, 
she basically has a really bad sunburn. And so it kind of heals up like a sunburn, just like a really bad sunburn. She'll probably have hyperpigmentation there. So tanning in that area for several months afterwards, but the acute dermatitis should heal up in the next few weeks, as long as we're not continuing radiation. Sometimes though, patients may come in the middle of radiation. This might get worse before it gets better. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it all depends on if we're continuing to give radiation or not. I was wondering, uh, in terms of side effects for radiation oncology, is about full for us or consultations? What are the major, the, like the top side effects? Sure. So it really depends on the cancer or the location. Um, so any anywhere in the pelvis, our target for gynecologic cancers and our target for you know prostate cancers, that target basically lies between or below the bladder and the rectum. So bladder and rectal toxicities are always possible when we're treating in the pelvis. Nowadays they're pretty, they're, they're not very common. So a grade three or, or four toxicity in the pelvis is pretty rare. In some cases, not it doesn't ever happen anymore with modern techniques. Um, but a grade two um, toxicity, like increased urination, user stools, uh, proctitis, those things can happen in the pelvis. For a breast cancer, mainly it's skin and skin toxicity and fatigue. Um, it, it depends on the location. There's a lot of head and neck patients will have dysphagia, will have mucositis, and so oftentimes they will lose quite a bit of weight or they'll be dehydrated. So pushing nutrition, in some cases, they may even need a PEG tube to make sure they can get through treatment, but it's all like Nate said, location specific. Yeah, I tell my patients, think of it like, like you would a surgery. So the surgery is only gonna work or cause side effects in the area where the surgeon's scalpel goes. Our radiation is only gonna cause a side effect where we aim it. So I'm not gonna cause you know necessarily nausea or hair loss if I'm treating down here. If I'm treating a brain cancer, I'll probably cause nausea, probably, I'll definitely cause hair loss. Um, and so it's really dependent on, on, on the location of the body that we're going after. What about how long? So if a patient says, I don't know if I'm going to do this, like, I don't even know if it's going to, like, is it going to, how, when will I know is it going to be effective? Sure. So what is, is that also dependent on the type? And the uh, it kind of is. And that's a question that basically every patient asks us, you know, so, so when will I know that this is working? Yeah. Um, and so the short answer or the short answer is, well, after we get done and we get some scans, you know, down the road and we know that it's, it's completely taken care of. Yes. Um, but we can say with percentages, cause we, we base all of our treatments on studies. So I can say with a percentage, you know, we're going to get this. And as long as you show up and as long as we deliver it where we want it to be, I have this percent chance that you don't have to deal with this ever again. Like so I can say to, that. We want to wait two to three months, for example, to get a PET scan because you're going to have a lot of inflammation in the tissues from the radiation. And so if you were to get one right after radiation, everything's going to light up because you've got a lot of metabolic activity as the tissues are recovering. Same thing with PSAs for prostate cancer. That's usually how we monitor after we finish our treatments. We want to wait about a couple of months or so as the radiation continues to work, healing off the prostate cancer cells. Two months or so, you start to see a downtrending PSA. If you get it before, you could see a downtrending PSA or uptrending, just a bump, as those cells are dying and releasing PSA. 
few questions. Well, thank you for having us. If you don't mind filling out that post-lecture survey, that would help us. And then we've sent the slides to your chief residents. Feel free to look through them, reach out to us if you have any questions or cases that you'd like to discuss. Yeah, definitely. Oh, <laughs> I, can, I can stop it.